0: This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host, and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten, and today I'm joined by Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute, law.unh.edu S-E-L-I to learn more, and he's also a r- reporter over at Sportico. Welcome back.
1: AJ, thanks for having me back.
0: So you actually were recording this on uh, Tuesday, August 23rd, and just so happened this morning you released an article ra- around the UFC suing a production company that made a documentary titled Bisbang, the Michael Bisbang story, uh, Over and they're suing them over unauthorized video use. And I, I was, as someone who, who's, uh, part of his career has been in the filmmaking side of things, it, it was, I was interested to find out that companies are not already seeking permission to use footage. So I'm excited to discuss this. What's the basis of the lawsuit?
1: Yeah, the lawsuit is based on this production company, creating a documentary of a former UFC fighter, a very accomplished one who's in the hall of fame. And they used UFC copyrighted video without permission. In fact, nearly a fifth of the film is video that the UFC owns and has copyrighted. So it, the UFC says you, you can't do this, that that documentary makers ordinarily reach out and obtain a license to use copyrighted video. This company, according to the complaint at least, did not. So it raises the question of, is this blatant copying? The answer to that is yes, but the, the defense will likely be, and, and Ryan Vaca, our colleague, who teaches copyright law and other things uh, spoke to me about this case. And I interviewed him in the story and Ryan uh, noted, it really comes down to fair use. Is this, it, 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 this isn't a live fight, right? So this is a documentary. One fair use argument is to say that this is different. This is a different, this is a transformative use that this is about telling his life story. On the other hand, it's pretty blatant copying. So, It does raise some really interesting issues about, uh, you know, Asia. Having you've done this type of work, I mean, I I imagine you seek permission when you're, you know, sort of uh, using others' videos.
0: Yeah, it's. I feel like nowadays it's gotten really confusing because back in the day, I mean, you'd just basically consider broadcast and physical media uh, productions, where it's universal, you would be seeking permissions, you would be getting written permission, you probably pay a certain level of royalties to do it. Uh, Is it because we're now in kind of the more digital realm where everything is on YouTube, it's going on streaming platforms and such, where it's really made this a much more complex landscape?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's so many different platforms that are allowing streaming of content right i mean it's not the days of uh, tv networks showing content they're still around but now as your your point notes there are all these other platforms that are offering video and uh, for youtube and for other companies that are hosts to videos that may be owned by others uh, they're certainly mindful of not Allowing the use of a copyrighted video that belongs to others, and I do think it creates this sort of wild west mentality that, you know, everyone's doing it, and it's not clear that they have permission. So why do I need to go through the whole rigmarole of getting permission and paying some, either royalties or a license or whatever it may be? Why don't I just sort of just go do it? And uh, you know, I think that may work in some cases, but but if somebody's selling a movie and a fifth of it is based on copyrighted video owned by a sports league it just doesn't seem like a good strategy at least from my vantage point to go in that route of course the league and the league also has the financial wherewithal to go after someone you know and it probably you know if it had been a minute or two maybe right. maybe they wouldn't care but i think if you take nearly a fifth of the film based on copyrighted video it's it's going to attract
0: the league's attention yeah that percentage uh, of the film being taking up the using foot that much of their footage for their film using uh fight video is really going to be problematic i mean when you if if it was like hey he happened to be in there and it's just a couple screenshots or it's like oh we we cut at the intro there's a small section of it you could very easily say it's fair use but this is a documentary on bisping it's not on the league
1: Yeah, that's a great point because I've talked to league lawyers of different leagues about the issue of what fans put online and league's position is they don't want to be too aggressive because they want fans to celebrate the league, the sport and share it and build other fans. So it's not worth sort of like being overly aggressive police state type going after cracking down on every single instance, but You know, for instance, the the highlight, you know, fans create highlights, they put them on social media. I don't think we see, even though they may not have permission to do it, I don't think leagues are going to sort of crack down on that just because it's not worth it. It looks it's anti fan. Right. Yeah. But I think when this sort of when the situation migrates into something like this, where nearly a fifth of the film is using copyrighted video, in some cases, some of these fights are really famous. One of them involving Conor McGregor only lasted 13 seconds. So if you show that fight, you're really showing the entirety of it. And uh, I think that it is a fine line. It's not black and white. It's not, you know, the kid who who puts a video on YouTube shows a home run. I mean, what's the point of going after that person? But here, a production company that also, it sounds like that they, that the, the fighter reached out about getting permission and then didn't follow up, at least according to the complaint. It's you know, it kind of looks worse, right? If you kind of yeah. initiate, it kind of signals, well, I know this is something I need to get and I'm not getting it.
0: I'm going to flake out I'm, I'm not, making I sure I get it, it done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, this is. This is a bit of a tangent, but also when you're talking about what well, I feel like what's going to make it really confusing for people who maybe aren't in the the entertainment or intellectual property world is the fact you see YouTube nowadays for everything, and the reason why you're able to see so much copyrighted material on YouTube and such is because of you hear copy striking is the meme yep. where where YouTube, Facebook, and such have automatic detection algorithms and a reporting mechanism for IP holders to say I own them but instead of taking it down the UFC is able to collect money off of that video so the advertising dollars that the content creator would have made just goes to the UFC and they and the UFC says okay fine sure we're, we're fine with that because we're making that money and in some cases you see takedowns uh so but it's harder for to fight if the video is able to stay up you're just not necessarily making money on it
1: yeah and the fighter loses money too right because yep. this is their the whole pay is generated by People paying to watch these fights, they're pay-per-view. Right. So, you know, it isn't, I mean, there are some people attending the fights, but most of the revenue is generated for both the league and the players through fees to watch. And if that's kind of being portrayed by the manner in which these documentaries are made, I mean, it, it makes sense that the league is going to, th- that sort of warrants intervention.
0: You we always talk about in the IP world, if you don't try to enforce your, your, copyright do you own it for intellectual property rights or anything like that and with the UFC especially I mean they have their streaming platform where you can watch all the backfights fights they have rebroadcast rights with uh, various uh, traditional broadcasts cable outlets and such it's if they don't step up by someone using this large amount of footage it could be problematic in the future I'm guessing
1: oh yeah yeah if they if they just don't do anything then and they put in the complaint if the if the law is people making documentaries can take whatever they want without permission. And that's really going to change the landscape of IP rights or at least for sports leagues and probably other companies that, that have footage, you know, entertainment companies, right. Of whether it's concerts or whatever it may be, uh, you know, seeing some of the documentaries now that are being aired, there's a lot of different copyright holders that are likely involved. I and mean, there's the new, the main Teo documentary on netflix the player that was catfished and there there are notre dame games in there there are all sorts of things in there that if it's just take whatever you want i mean i think we're going to see we're going to see leagues and and other providers of content treat treat things differently
0: yeah this could big time set a, a long time precedent with how large companies that have the money to take smaller creators to court um get out there and to to quash anything that's maybe against what it is they did i mean you figure think you're disney's and such all the documentaries that are speaking ill of or uh, reviews that are speaking ill of uh, productions you think star wars of late has been massively critiqued in the youtube world uh and this could open it up to them to really jump in and say nope we're done with this yeah, yeah
1: that's right uh or, or new restrictions on the content i mean i i you know, maybe there's ways of changing video content, so it's just less less capable of being replicated.
0: Move on to another article that you wrote about in Sportico NCAA ushers dog groomers strippers into athlete employee case. Just best headline ever. <laughs> What's going on here with us?
1: So this this story is about an ongoing lawsuit involving college athletes saying that they're employees, which is a theme that we've heard for now almost a decade. And this case, which is Johnson v. NCAA, is the argument that college athletes are employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So when we hear about college athletes as employees, most times it's referenced in the context of of the National Labor Relations Act, different federal law. If they're employees under the NLRA, they would then get, uh, they would be treated like other university employees. So they may have health care, they may have retirement benefits. They uh, may be able to unionize. There's all sorts of of applications. The difference with the Fair Labor Standards Act is to say, we're not going that far. It would be treating college athletes like their classmates who are on work study, some of whom may be working at games, right? So you could have the, the, the student who sells a ticket to a sporting event. The student that sells a ticket is paid, but the athlete in the game isn't. So the argument is, well, shouldn't they all get paid? and this case is now before the US court of appeals for the 3rd circuit and the plaintiffs have argued that if you look at case law that the, the one instance where it where call it where where workers are considered exempt for uh, benefits under the FLSA is under the 13th amendment which is that involuntary servitude so prison workers can be put to work without being without having the right to say that they have to be paid by the prison consistent with the FLSA. So the lawyers for the NCAA say, well, actually this topic comes up in all sorts of issues well beyond prisoners, also dog groomers and would be hairstylists. So it's just sort of interesting to read an NCAA court filing referencing dog groomers and exotic dancers. Uh, I, I think it sort of reads as it's th- probably all true, but, you know, question is sort of, is this worth the fight that the defense has to kind of resort to talking about these other occupations to say that college athletes aren't employees to sort of refer to exotic dancers and dog groomers? Yeah, I'm not sure about the optics of that.
0: Yeah, it it, it's an interesting. It's not good optics, period. No matter what we want to look at it, but it's an interesting way to analyze how the NCAA works with when you compare it to apprenticeships and things like that.
1: Yeah, so would be hairstylists, for instance, are not paid, even though they're doing the work of a hairstylist. Uh, So the so or or if someone is in a dog grooming business with another dog groomer they can't necessarily say they're an employee by grooming dogs they may be some other they may be a co-owner for instance so whether it's an apprenticeship or whether there's some other role the ncaa is saying it's more complicated than say, well the college athlete is functioning as an employee because he or she is doing work that there are these other classifications of workers who are not or not classified as employees, and and would be hairstylists would be one. I think the question then becomes, even if that's true, is this really the road that the NCAA wants to travel? That they're sort of referring to apprentices, uh, and, and the lawyers for the players have argued that these examples are off point, that college athletes are really in a different scenario. They're actually generating a lot of revenue for a school their schedule is dictated by a coach at the idea that somehow you know going to a salon for five hours to style hair is equivalent to a full season of sports may not be all that persuasive
0: yeah i mean the with hair and such i mean that's a matter matter of um certification for what jurisdiction they're operating in that's not the case with athletics they're going to in On paper, they're going to school to get an education, which is the thing that they're doing alongside the extracurricular, not the other way around.
1: Yeah. And even if cosmetology doesn't always have, you're right, licensing with hair, and even if other aspects of that industry don't require a license, it's the same issue that you just referenced, which is the the athlete is is there. Yes, they're a student, but they're also there to play a sport, which at many schools generates revenue. And I mean, whether college athletes are employees and what would be the effect of them being classified as employees, there are all sorts of interesting issues because at some schools, sports doesn't generate that kind of revenue, right? Right. Most schools are not Alabama or Notre Dame or USC. They're they're small New England schools or whatever, you know. So what would be the effect of college athletes getting in some cases scholarships plus pay would, would teams be cut? I know many would forecast that in a world where college athletes are getting pay in addition to scholarship, that schools would would invest less, would have less money to pay the players. Now some would say, well, maybe they don't have to pay the coaches much, or maybe they don't have to build a big stadium. They're all sort of distributional questions, but uh, it will be interesting. You know, I'm over, I'm of the view sort of that if college athletes are employees, it may not be true at all schools. Mm-hmm. Right, and maybe it may be that at in the southeastern conference that the argument has much more persuasion than at a smaller conference, where you know I I mean I've taught at UNH undergrad and I've had student athletes and you know I I think they're there primarily to to be a student and playing a sport, but that same class at Clemson or Alabama or you know university of florida maybe that's a different calculus maybe
0: yeah when it when it's a multi billion dollar television (laughs) this deal involved in the situation i mean that really makes makes the case that not all sports team college sports teams are created equal
1: that's right i mean the big 10 getting a multi-billion dollar tv contract where games are going to be played by athletes who aren't paid it, it does raise something doesn't seem right right i mean it's just Sort of the the common sense test suggests that that's not right, and then I think the question becomes: if it's not right, how to how to address that? Is it legislation? Is it litigation? Do all colleges change their rules? Are we only talking about? You know, you could say there's really thirty or forty colleges that have that are kind of like the pros in terms right. of generating revenue, but many schools are not, and it's going to be interesting to see how these rules. If they change, whether they go to, whether they're too extensive in terms of the changes that are commanded.
0: And to add in the complexity of leagues that don't have non uh, academic based uh, leagues for people to enter the professionals with.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, in other parts of the world, the idea of college sports being a de facto minor league runs counter, right? I mean, either they're, either. Athletes turn pro at younger ages, like soccer, for instance, could be a, a young kid playing pro soccer. Uh, you know, 12, I, mean, I think they've been as young as 12 or, or 13. Wow. Uh, and even, I remember Ed O'Bannon, the former NBA player that I wrote the book with, he said he had a teammate in Poland who was like 13 or 14. And he'd pick him up in the morning and drive him home. Well, that kid was getting paid. Yeah. You know, so the idea of college sports being a minor league, is kind of unique to the US. It's also it's also apparent to some extent in Canada, but it's really an American creature that we that we have this minor league system operating through higher ed.
0: Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute and writer at Sportico, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help for a word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu podcast.